0: Seceding Scots, Teutonic terror, and barricading Belgians. Today we're hooked on a schlieffen and feeling a bit phlegmy in this, the first episode of The Barstool Historian. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Barstool Historian, broadcasting from the Lion's Arms, our digital tavern. And this is a podcast for people who love history, people like you, people who talk about history the way that other people, you know, normal people, like to talk about sports. So in this show, we're going to pay particular attention to history-themed books, films, and other media. Uh, seances. Um, seances. Well, thank you very much. Yes. So uh, as... Smoke
1: signals, signaling, you know. Smoke
0: signals, yes. <laughs> semaphore. Semaphore, for sure. Uh, interpret, interpretive dance. Uh, if this was a video podcast, I would make that happen. I would actually do an interpretive dance. So uh, as former vice presidential candidate... Admiral James Stockdale once asked, who am I? Why am I here? You like that
1: reference? You
0: like this transition? Uh, I'm John in Brooklyn, and today I'm joined by Ed in Northern Illinois.
1: I'm in Geneva, Illinois. Geneva, you can, you know, Illinois. Doesn't have to be unknown whereabouts. So.
0: <laughs> the jewel of the fox. Uh, And then way up in the wilderness of the the apparent
2: wilderness of the upper east side
0: of Manhattan is uh, is Tim. Hello, Tim.
2: Hello, gentlemen. My parents would say that I'm no longer in Manhattan, but that's a different story.
0: (laughs) That's a different story altogether.
2: (laughs) Well, let me start off
0: with a with perhaps a strange question. Um, Is it wrong that I am enjoying the centennial uh, of the beginning of world war one as much as i am does that make me a bad person i
2: i I don't think so at all i mean we are old souls um and we love history but we also love the romanticism of that era (laughs) and we love the juxtaposition of the 19th and 20th centuries as much as we do the 20th and 21st so they all come together in this anniversary i think it's uh I think it's it, it's quite enjoyable, actually. I
1: think. It's- um, do you want do you want my feedback? Oh, absolutely. Yes, you should be ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, true. I am. You should just be you should be weeping a field of poppies constantly <laughs> until twenty eighteen. <2018. laughs> I will. I will get. I will certainly get to that point.
0: But at this point, just being able to see something about World War One. Uh, on a on a regular basis in the paper, um, you know, on on TV. I mean, they've they've must have had at least eight different documentaries just in the past year. Yeah, that,
1: that's that's almost double the amount of documentaries about World War One they have a year. So yeah, impressive.
0: that's that's probably almost <laughs> double the number of documentaries ever made about it. Period. So f- for that reason, we're talking about perhaps the most famous World War One uh, book there is: the Guns of August. Um, this was a massive book in 1961. This was a a book that I think was on everybody's shelf if you belong to the Book of the Month Club. My grandmother had it. I don't know if she ever read it. (laughs) My wife informed me I need to go upstairs. So would you guys give me one
2: second? (laughs) Don't edit this out, John. This is good stuff. This is good (laughs) stuff. I sense that you've sounded the retreat.
0: Hey, hang on a second. I'm going to decouple here for a second I like to think that Colonel Clink was the way he was because of his experiences in, in, in World War One
2: <laughs> yes Colonel Clink is, is a direct result of the failure of Versailles take three uh, so
0: anyway let's, let's get down to business guys uh, before we jump into our main topic um, I want to bring up a bit of junk history that I've been seeing all over the news recently. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the bad Scottish history I've I've seen and heard in all of this analysis and commentary on the Scottish referendum. So, particularly, this quote that I hear repeated from uh, such bright stars as Alan Cumming... <laughs> <laughs> celebrity <laughs> advocate for um, for Scottish independence, and of course, you know the bad guy programmer from Goldeneye. <laughs> and what he said—quite a resume, quite a resume. Yes. And what he said about the Act of Union was: this was just a union created for the sole purpose of conquering and conquering the rest of the world.
2: Oh my!
0: Yeah. You'd understand that just coming from Alan Cumming. But yeah. I actually saw virtually the same statement in a recent editorial in The Guardian. It was a pro-independence, not not from The Guardian itself, but from a Guardian contributor. I heard this in uh, some of the talking head interviews that, that were on uh, some of the news coverage. This is just sort of downright dangerously bad history. And if you look mm-hmm. at that, 1707 Act of Union, it was as much a, a product of uh, Scottish nobles uh, as it was uh, anyone in England. And this yes. was a way for them to get on equal footing with uh, the, you know, the, the English nobility and to counteract what they saw as an unfair English advantage in trade, uh, as well as um, just influence over their own parliament.
1: Well, it's interesting that you say that, John. That because, well, Scottish history is you know it's kind of shaky since it was all written on sheep. Um, (laughs) Most accounts uh, of the uh, Act of Union of 1707 it was uh, precipitated by the Darien Scheme in uh, 1897. uh, Sorry, 1697 uh, to 1700, uh, which sucked in. About a third of the cash in Scotland, and some people might ask, well, "What is the Darien Scheme?" Well, the Darien Scheme was the brilliant plan the Scottish saw the English had colonies in the Caribbean that were by the eighteen nineties, sixteen nineties. Why do I keep on saying eighteen nineties, sixteen nineties? Not the Belapak starting to actually make some real cash. Well, we can do this too. Oh, I'm sorry, oh, we can do this too. You know, <laughs> so they they went down to an island right off Panama, right right in the middle of the Spanish. Uh, realm and uh they had this big scheme we're gonna make our own caribbean colony we're gonna make money out of it it's gonna be the best thing to ever happen to scotland and they got it it was basically by public subscription uh thousands and thousands of you know pounds of money went into it and uh for anyone who knows anything about panama uh, or you know that how hard it was to build a canal there in 1690, even living near Panama was a death zone. So, of course, just kind of like Jamestown, 180 years before, these Scots died in droves. And uh, 1700, the Spanish finally got around to kicking them out, these dying Scots out. That kind of softened it all up for the Act of Union. Because a lot, as you said, a lot of these <laughs> landowners, these nobles, were pretty damn impoverished by, this, uh, by that scheme. So anyway, that's my soundbite there.
2: Well, I, Ed, I'd love to uh, expound upon that a little bit because um, what you touch upon are the actual perspectives for union, the, the arguments for union at the time in uh, the 1700s are, are very close to the real arguments for union today, which is – that the Scottish perspective was that they were in financial peril over their failed colonial endeavours, so they sought stability uh, through solidarity with the more robust English economy. And then from the British perspective, from the English perspective, the pro-union argument was political, which is to say that um, a fear that the Scots might choose a different king and ally themselves with one of England's enemies was something that they feared. And, and the comparable scenario today would be the, uh, uh, the diminishing of British power globally, first uh, as a member of the Security Council, which is tenuous right now as it is, and then as our strongest ally, the United States, and link with Europe – Uh, the argument for Scottish uh, Union from the British perspective, from the English perspective, would be to maintain the strength of the United Kingdom uh, that has projected its diplomatic strength for so many centuries. And really, those two perspectives are the real uh, pro-union arguments Mm -hmm. at play. And that is, unfortunately... Uh, uh unfortunately uh that has has never been discussed in the major media yeah. i mean john you you uh articulated what Alan Cummings uh, said, <laughs> which is essentially was played throughout the media. It was essentially the um, uh, a combination of Occupy Wall Street and Braveheart versus uh, the United Kingdom, this, this evil uh, behemoth that takes the taxes of the people and, uh, you know, is continues to build its empire. So uh, it occurred to me that uh, the underlying economic realities um, of Scotland... Uh, in some ways and 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 the question of union in some ways is comparable to uh the evolution of the labor movement in the united states and that is to say that the deindustrialization of england and the industrial centers in the north caused disenfranchisement mm-hmm. And the transition of Western economies, particularly the United States and Great Britain, to service and technology-based economies where, frankly, uh, 10, uh, 20-year-olds who look like Mark Zuckerberg can run a $100 million company with no overhead has created a disenfranchisement of labor which uh, has created anxiety and ill will that's not being addressed by good targeted economic policies, and it will continue to stir unrest until it until it, it is addressed. You know, I and I keep thinking Occupy Wall Street plus Braveheart, and I keep I keep thinking of this chant. They can foreclose our homes, but they cannot take away the filthy stench of freedom. Yeah. You know, I want to
1: get this back to to the. I think I can tie this all together. So I'll be the. So I'll be the. Uh, I'll I'll be the devil's advocate, even though I was. You know, pre, you know, it's not my country, but I was supposed pro yes. Uh, sorry, pro no. Uh, you know, keep the union. Here's the takeaway: nationalism persists ethnic nationalism persists and no matter modernity and we can put the things behind us it persists and it did at the beginning of world war one it was the spark in serbia that lit it but really it was the ethnic nationalism that put germany together from prussia consolidating in the 1860s 1870s 1880s that lit the match uh it was uh you know the 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 Belgians that just were a young country and not even 80 years old in 1914 that were expected just to roll over and and let the Germans tromp through, that put up resistance and got the world against Germany. That nationalism, that ethnic nationalism, even though, yes, I know there's Wallens and um, – and I almost said doubloons, but uh, – <laughs> 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 the french speakers <laughs> of uh belgian yeah, i mean there there's some the nationalism wh- hey it's us i see you neighbor i hate you every day but you're better than you know this this you know england or another country so yeah, i i understand i understand the yes and i i almost was hoping well let's let me explain why i was kind of hoping for a yes your point tim it really actually would have shown the Scots. Well, yeah, you have this oil, but it's going downhill, and you are getting a ton of money from London. That that spigot's going to be shut off. So really, you know, one is just replacing the other. So you're not really going to be that much better off economically. Um, at the, but on the other hand, they really had some bad policies. The the Scottish National Party. And what I was hoping for, this is my, my was my dream, was that. It would cause massive inflation and a serious uh, uh, downfall of the Scottish pound, which would make whiskey prices plummet <laughs> <slumish laughs> 90%. Oh, so I, I, people I, I, are I, getting I, Talisker 25 years for like 30 bucks and <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that's, well, I tell you, it's, it's, it's it's a Rube Goldberg kind of thing, but it could have happened. That, that that is an amazing analysis and I I wasn't sure where you were going with it, but the ultimate outcome I must agree 100% as I sip this Lagavulin which um it, it's it's way way overpriced and is due for a uh, little deflation as a result of <laughs> disunion and financial chaos. <laughs> oh,
1: whiskey, are the devil. You're leading me astray. Over oh, hills and mountains into America. You're sweet, you're strong, you're decent, spunkier
2: than tape. Oh, whiskey, are made darling drunk or so.
1: How brave boys are on for margin. You see, Baldrick, in order to prevent war in Europe, two superblocks developed. Us, the French, and the Russians on one side, and the Germans and Austro-Hungary on the other. The idea was to have two vast opposing armies,
0: each acting as the other's deterrent. That way, there could never be a war. But
1: this is a sort of a war, isn't it, sir? Yes, that's right. You see, there was a tiny flaw in the plan. What was that, sir? It was bollocks. <laughs>
0: okay all right fellas uh we're back uh with the discussion here let's get into the real uh the meat of our discussion this book let's get into the book meat of this (laughs) of this discussion Mm, so we're talking about yeah (laughs) so we're talking about the guns of august i realized that i forgot in the beginning of the the podcast to say the author's name which is really unforgivable (laughs) this was barbara tuckman some nobody yes some nobody It wasn't Danielle Steele, I, that, that much I know. Uh, it, it was Barbara Tuckman. This book was published in 1961, um, and as I said earlier, this is one of the most popular books on World War One uh, in any age. So let me ask you guys, 50 plus years on, was there anything in this book that really surprised you?
2: Well, uh, one of the things that, well, first of all, the, the literary nature of the book in general and the focus on the human element, the very flawed individuals and and the driving philosophical forces behind the actions that turned events. The focus on that rather than the interdependence of of nations and rather than the analytics um, I thought was refreshing and captivating. Um, What personally moved me and what I found to be different uh, what what I should say has stayed with me was her description of the Belgian people. The plight of the Belgian people and King Albert was never so vividly recounted as she had done. Um, and it gave rise to an understanding of uh, the German brutality, the nature of German brutality in the war. Uh, but it also gave rise to the sense of the, the skewed vision of the Germans uh, for the first time i realized the Germans really the, the the turning point for them i think and she gets into this that the atrocities really were to them justified because they found the disconnect between the fighting man and the government
0: mm-hmm.
2: as, as as a soldier existing outside of order to be offensive this guerrilla type soldier the, the fact that someone uh, could take a position as a sniper to them was a violation of international law, and it created yeah. this justification for brutality. Well, that was the biggest surprise for me. I did not appreciate until I
0: read this book how premeditated a lot of the atrocities were and how much a part of the strategy those um, those terrorist tactics And I think that's the right term for them. They were integral to the the plan that they have to be able to move through Belgium as fast as possible, not tie down troops occupying uh, that place. Uh, And that the orders came from from headquarters, basically. They came from OHL. I think back to high school and I think about the uh, world history class we had in high school. I think, Ed, you may have even been there in that class. And even even then, we were told that much of what was said about Belgium, uh, especially in Britain, uh, you know, in in in, uh, in August 1914, was was hysterical. It was hysteria. It was propaganda. And, and I don't know how I got this far in my life without having a, a real understanding of this. But I I was really surprised by the reality of it, that there were plenty of cases where they would they would pick out uh, priests and other notables in towns mayors and and systematically execute them or at
1: the very least hold them hostage yeah. No, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with the, the shock of it. <laughs> what struck me is when the foreign correspondents, when, like, the Swedish and American, of course, neutral correspondents, you know, asked the Germans about this, I'm sure expecting to hear, oh, those are nothing but lies. Hey, yeah, so, are, are you shooting c- civilians in, in Belgium? Like, yeah, can you believe these civilians? My God, why are they making us shoot them so much? You know, it was just so preposterous. They, They been signatories to the Geneva Conventions to all these treaties, but their doctrine of military necessity always overrid these treaties because yep. Germany really wasn't a, it was not a state of laws. It really wasn't a dictatorship. it was a, it was a, a military uh, centric nation, just a militaristic nation to such a degree that military necessity really was the, the trump card of everything uh, they'd agreed to every, any ideal winning 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 and it, so yes it was it was shocking
0: it wasn't just the military that, that doctrine of, of military necessity one of the things that i also found surprising in the book was uh, Tuckman talks about how the, the german intellectuals had kind of paved uh, paved the way to that in this notion of um aggression uh being good and and a natural the natural state um, and that it was healthy for a country to be uh, aggressive and to fight, uh, and it wasn't just Germany either. I mean, it was something that um, and she talks about uh, that notion of uh, Elan and Kran, right. Cran, C R A N, in France. Um,
1: that was That's all. That's the second of most surprising yeah. thing. The you, of
2: the you know, um, the Elan and Cran became a manifest st- strategy. Uh, which is very strange, but one of the things that Tuckman speaks about early on in the book, which also I found fascinating, expounding upon your point, John, is she speaks of Fichte and and his philosophical writings on the Germans as chosen by Providence, mm-hmm. uh, the Hegelian philosophical perspective that Germans are. Or are, are le- should lead, or are leading, some type of glorious destiny. Nietzsche's idea of the Superman, and that there was this body of work that 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 um, articulated the German understanding of themselves as superior, which is which I found eerie because it's the beginning of the book. It's it's before. It's it's before the guns of August. These views were bubbling to the surface, mm-hmm. and 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 found their um, outlet in warfare. Mm-hmm. And and they were prepared when speaking about the use of the bayonet and and the cavalry charge versus the machine gun. Mm-hmm. It was really the Germans who understood the benefits of the technology of war. Uh, they understood it and they were ahead of the game. Yeah. They were sort of prepared <laughs> uh, to fulfill their destiny in, in that sense. It
1: was Belgium put the Kaibosh
2: on the Kaiser. You're from the king that made him sore. And on his throne it hurts to sit. And when Jumbo starts to hit, he may never sit upon it anymore. It was Belgium
1: put the Kaibosh on the Kaiser.
0: Let me ask you guys about the, the the character sketches, which I think are I think is the thing that really stands out for me about this book. You mentioned King Leopold uh, Ed, and I think one of the one of the best capsule sized character sketches in the whole book is of, of is of Leopold II, uh, who who was that really sinister character. Um, I, I'd like to read a little bit of this to you guys because I think this is, this is a pretty good example of, of what I'm talking about. They talk about the Germans, uh, basically their, their whole attitude about Belgium uh, that they would roll over or that they could be you know bought, essentially. That all came from their understanding of, of Leopold II. Uh, so as she says, Leopold II, who was king of the Belgians in Schlieffen's time. So Schlieffen, the guy who, of course, came up with the whole day, the idea of driving through Belgium. Um, I love this part. Tall and imposing with his black spade beard and his aura of wickedness composed of mistresses, money, Congo cruelties, and other scandals. Leopold was, in the opinion of Emperor Franz Josef of Austria, a thoroughly bad man. There were few men who could be so described, the emperor said, but the king of the Belgians was one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a really astute point, John, and it's not one that I I really put together until you said it. That the assumptions that led them to go through Belgium, like the Belgians, they're barely a country, they're they're greedy king. take money or safety or whatever uh, that they were not expecting to meet the resistance they were. And uh, again, it's underlined again and again, through the book, this is part of what led the Germans to, you know, reprise on such a horrific uh, scale. Like what, why are they doing this to us? I mean, these stupid Belgians, just let us march through and yeah. kill the French. So, Well, yeah, the, the, there's this, there's this
0: incredulous, um, throughout all the participants, all the commanders, anyway, uh, this frustration that the enemy isn 't doing what they 're supposed to do <laughs> this is this is not what they 're supposed to do um, uh, you know whether we 're talking about jafra who 's Basically, this uh, push through Belgium, um, he, he does not think that uh, there's any reason to worry that the men keep coming and coming and coming up north. He thinks the main drive is going to come uh, down south and even says things like, oh, well, you know, the, the more men come up north, the better for us. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you all know, the better. <laughs> yeah, all the better. So much the better for us. And it's that sort of tyranny of the of the predetermined plan of those fixed plans that yeah. were written up many, many years before, stuck in a pigeonhole, the Schlieffen plan being, you know, of course, the, the big example of this, um, or plan 17 for, for France. Um, and I think that, that that whole strategy of Belgium, you know, it, it had its roots with Leopold. Um, the uh, The French plan... Had its roots even farther back <laughs> with the Franco-Prussian War. Mm-hmm. Um, the German uh, terror had its roots in the Franco-Prussian War with this um, this fear of Franktirur, if I can pronounce that correct. You know the uh, the snipers. Um, it's amazing that 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 there was that cultural memory, by the way, of those snipers in the Franco-Prussian War that men, you know, who uh, probably had no living memory and probably just heard things from their fathers or grandfathers about these French snipers, that could still prey on them in, 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 in 1914. But my overall point is basically, this is these are people who their minds were several decades behind. Yeah. and
2: You know, I agree completely... That the obsequious adherence to the master plan is certainly one of the prevailing lessons of the book, and something that nations continue to mm-hmm. uh, to to they continue to make that mistake. But there is an interesting moment um, in the Guns of August, where uh, the night before, and Tuckman speaks about Kaiser Wilhelm finally having this road to Damascus moment <laughs> where he realizes the inherent flaws of marching through Belgium. And he calls general Moltke and he says, you know, I think we should send the armies East instead <laughs> and, 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 and proceed with a Russo German war. And, um, you know, Moltke refused, uh, and, and he was, he considered the Kaiser to be meddlesome and he could not even approach the idea of altering this this fixed plan this you know predetermined fixed arrangement
0: Um,
2: I wanted to, John, just touch on what you said regarding her her character descriptions. One was Ludendorff.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: Uh, where she describes him as a man without a shadow. What yeah. Great. Great literary quality to that phrase and completely spot on uh evocative and eerie
0: yeah Uh, this is one of the best single sketches of a character i've ever seen in a in a general history that is not an autobiography let me read this because i think this is really um worth worth hearing Gluttony for work and a granite character had overcome lack of a von V.O.N., to win for Captain Eric Ludendorff the right to wear the coveted red stripes of the general staff, whose ranks he entered at the age of 30 in 1895. Although his thick body, his blond mustache over a harsh, down-curving mouth, his round double chin, and that bulge at the back of the neck, which Emerson called the mark of the beast... <laughs> Characterized Ludendorff as belonging to the opposite physical type from the the aristocratic Schlieffen, he modeled himself on Schlieffen's hard, shut-in personality, deliberately friendless and forbidding, the man who within two years was to exercise greater power over the people and fate of Germany than anyone else since Frederick the Great remained little known or liked. None of the usual reminiscences of friends and family or personal stories or sayings accumulated around him. Even as he grew in eminence, he moved without attendant anecdotes, a man without a shadow. It is eerie. It is is eerie. And and I, I think that line, just that one line, he moved without attendant anecdotes, a man without shadow, really conveys how singular he is as a, as a historical character. Yes. It, it also kind of conveys what you feel must be a certain amount of frustration on the part of this writer, um, you know, who was trying to research this man, surely, and, and oh. coming up short. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: You, you notice that when she talks about Asquith, too. Oh, you know, no one true. knew what was on his mind. My, on his mind. And you can tell <laughs> him frustration. Like, I read all his papers. I still don't have a bloody clue what he was thinking at the time. So. Especially
0: since Afquis Asquith, uh, and I believe it's this book I get my books confused but Asquith the way he responds to things is so um, not what you would think is the appropriate response you know I think he's he's rushing to some meeting from some um, uh, d- during the height of the July crisis he's out he's out at one of the country estates for the weekend doing his <laughs> his usual uh, upper crusty weekend trip
2: out to the country uh, could Absolutely. could I uh, could, could I just digress for one moment and yeah. and and beg beg your indulgence? Is <laughs> it just is it just me, or when you hear the name Ludendorff, <laughs> do you feel like saying, "I was born in Ludendorff, and that is why they call me Rob"? <laughs> the Kaiser is a
0: great character in this book. Oh right. God, is he? Oh, right. he, yes. he I, I mean, a, a tragic comic. Character. Uh, I mean, you know, the way that she portrays him as, um, you know, a guy who knows enough to just get himself into trouble. <laughs> yeah but, but he doesn't actually have as much power as he needs to uh to to stop them from from going to war. Once once the gears are in motion. He was an egomaniac at the same time that he was also terribly insecure. Yes. and desperate for for approval, uh-huh. desperate for acceptance, especially by his British relatives who he always had a bit of an inferiority complex. Didn't but they... but I think it you know Tuckman's uh, the way he, she portrays Wilhelm in this book uh, I think it's really colored our impressions of him uh, ever since. And every kind of game At football down on Pulo You men have made your name But now your country calls you To play your part in war And no matter what you We
1: Yeah. No one more French than Joffre. Yeah, I mean, he just exudes everything good and bad about France.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, mean, that's so many true. ways.
1: That's true.
0: I mean, this is the man who, what he, he, you know, uh, in one of those those critical moments of the of the war in the early months, he takes a nap under a tree, if I remember correctly, outside yes. outside exactly. um, uh, GQG, and uh, but I, you know, he he gets a little bit of credit for at least keeping his head when well but
2: he gives himself yeah that's true when, when the chips were down and and she's pretty good about finally uh giving him credit that that when the their backs were against the wall he rose to the occasion but before that which was some time down the line he often gave himself the credit i mean which, yeah. which was also perfectly French. and. <laughs> I, yes. I, I, there, there's the moment... Uh, what was his name? It was it General Galliani? The semi Galliani, yeah. Yeah, uh, Galliani. The, he was the like the... in Paris, who, yeah. frankly... Well, that's another description that yes. stayed with me. The, the 600 taxi cabs yes. bringing the men to the front, men and munitions to the front, was just... Uh, captivating and electrifying. Yes. Um, but, interestingly, he is the one brought out of retirement who sort of looked around and said, wait a minute, um, going with your gut doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, yes. and, and the Alan and Cran are fine as a rallying cry, but as a strategy, it doesn't make sense. And hence, you know, the Battle of Marne and, you know, trench trench warfare of finally fighting fighting the defensive. But it was uh, Jaffra who took credit for saving Paris, and it was completely (laughs) incidental uh, that he was in command and someone who with with a cooler head was able to actually save the day.
1: Well, and then he has, he also has that great quote. Was it? Uh, I just looked it up. Eh bien, voilà moi, qui n'est pas banal. Well, here at least is something out of the ordinary with me as he sees all the taxis going to the front. Now that's great. What is the lady told the folks are singing around
2: the
1: tree? Singing
2: around the tree, everyone you meet. What is the latest melody that's called the young idea, from a ticky to a secret, and I'll whisper in your ear, Madame Madel from Armandeers, par-label, Madame Madel from
1: I have to take issue it, with something you said a, a while ago, John, referring to Plan 17 as a coherent, <laughs> well-executed <laughs> plan. Oh, did I
0: say that? I said it was a, it was a plan that was thought up for a while.
1: The Schlieffen Plan. And, you know, just to review for, for the podcast: the Schlieffen Plan was essentially a huge right-wing turn through Belgium uh, around the French army while trying to induce the French army to attack Germany through Alsace and Lorraine. The former French provinces that were taken by Germany during the Prussian Franco-Prussian War, uh, Schlieffen planned on the French being stupid and just headlong going right through Alsace and Lorraine. Yeah. The thing is, that was their plan, but they really didn't. Have a plan. It no. Was, it was essentially, let's just charge forward and start killing Germans. And, you know, we'll stop when the Germans stop. You know, there are no more Germans to kill. I mean, it's right. just idiocy uh, right. on their part. The Germans had timetables, logistics, everything. The French are like, well, we're just going to charge them. Yeah. And I, but we assume they're going to die. And we're going to, you know, drink some and, cognac that night. Yeah, so. and, and,
2: and but for Galliani's heroism, they were nearly enveloped and, and destroyed.
1: We have Lanyezak, the uh, guy that got canned by. Is the guy that finally realized, like, yeah, yeah. we are on the cusp of a another Franco-Prussian defeat where the entire French army is destroyed and they can just march into Paris. And we at least have to get as many soldiers out of the way and back out of this enveloping wing as possible. That's right. He was able to do it. And he was he was thanked by getting his ass canned by uh Jaffa for not having Krenn. <laughs>
2: Right, he was essentially branded a coward. Yeah.
1: Actually, I looked up what happened, and she refers to it a little later. They realized after Joffre got canned later in the war, in 1916, 1917, other smarter uh, French uh, officers uh, realized what he had done and invited him to, you know, come back, command again. He was so pissed off, he said, "Yeah, no, no thanks, <laughs> I'm done." <laughs>
0: Swing, swing right through them, boys. We will take them and we'll make them yelp. When
1: they hear those Uncle Bingley, this will be the Yankee counter time. They will do no
0: one about- thing that I think makes this really. Uh, feel like a book from 1961 which is even though she talks about the very frankly about the, the terror in belgium there's a there's a a, a, a non-judgmental attitude to yes. the proceedings yes. there's an objective quality to this book that to be honest i don't think you would have in a book that is a mainstream general uh, audience history that would be published today this is what stands out about it when I first read this book, I thought, well, she's almost like skirting the issue, the discussion of, of blame, of war guilt, um, almost avoiding the topic. I I don't know that she's avoiding it, but I but you really feel that it's you know there's there's a d- the degree of subtlety um, to. Her appraisal of, of how this war started that you just wouldn't find in a book that was published in 2014. A popular history published in 2014 would take a more provocative um, stance.
2: Absolutely.
0: It it would it would it would absolutely deal or touch upon who was responsible. You know that's that's a very 2014 uh, approach to writing popular histories. The kind that can be distilled into a single magazine article that, gets, that appears in several different publications that serves as an advertisement for a book. <laughs> right. And, the, and, and I find it refreshing to read The Guns of August mm. and, and to not have, uh, to, to, to not have that. <laughs> yeah, I, I,
2: I totally agree. I also find that refreshing, and I find that she almost is speaking to you as a peer. Um, and and I, I found that to be exhilarating, frankly.
0: Do you think any of that has to do with the fact that she was not an academic herself or not an academic in the? I totally
2: sense? do. I, I think that uh, it has to do with that. Um, I think it has to do with the context of her own life, being in the midst of very opinionated people, yeah. being a woman in in a, a very uh, powerful political family.
1: I think it's interesting that she writes about herself as being an eyewitness in one of the yes. uh, aspects of this. And she at no point tells you it was her or even alludes to it in any way. You actually have to know who she is to understand that she's in this book, uh, in that she's the granddaughter of Henry Morgenthau. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, chase uh, of the Gibbon uh, in the Breslau, uh, the... Uh, a, a Venetian passenger ship uh, carrying Morgenthau and his three grandchildren, uh, she says, you know, sees this this battle, you know, the British trying to uh, the, a British cruiser trying to stop them, and when they get to Istanbul, uh, you know, the the German ambassador, yeah. The- Interrogates her and her her family very closely. What exactly did you see? At uh, no point does she mention it. But since she is a granddaughter, one can only presume that she was, you know, a tiny, you know, four year old or or what have you. And that really must make it personal mm-hmm. uh, for you as a as a historian. And it's I think it's even more remarkable that she is so you know standoffish. Uh, as far as making uh, making any judgments. On the other hand, when you think about it closely too, uh, you think of the Germans now. You think of what, you know the evil Nazis. You know the the tyrannical uh, Kaiser in World War One. But if you're a if you're an American, 1914, you don't have a huge love for England. You have some love for France, but I mean Germany is just it's another country. I mean, and, and a thing too is in looking at that you know her as a spectator is thinking about how the Americans appear in this book and the Americans always appear Maybe you know, going a little bit towards the Allies, but seen especially by the Germans, as essentially true neutrals, mm-hmm. uh, willing to you know take German embassies in Paris and and be responsible for them. Um, so you know, maybe that kind of perspective on her part uh, helped in making her more objective. Although that's mm-hmm. pure conjecture. We'll bring him something good, a cologne made of wood. We'll whisk him well with shuffling gel. The sum of
0: a gun, we'll, we'll give him, him well, we're on. Oh, he's so holding up the tizer. The English friends, the Yanks, and Irish people, and Irish. I'm interested in how uh the early 60s, the cultural the early 60s, affected how we remember this book. You know, how I always understood the book was, this is a story about how, uh, the leaders of the Western world blundered into a war that nobody wanted. they, they were just they were blind and they, they blundered into it. And th- that's not the story at all. That is very much, I think, um, the result of a of, of a book that came out in the idealistic early '60s. <laughs> the yeah, k- no, you're the, the Kumbaya uh, early <laughs> '60s, where nobody wants war. Um, let's turn our plow our swords into plowshares early 60s and you know this is a this is actually a book about how people who should have known better made bad decisions and how there were yes there were there there were lots of people maybe a majority of people who did not war want war but there were enough people who who did want it and thought that it was a good thing
1: mm-hmm. basically. and you all and you always hear about Uh, The Guns of August in terms of the Cuba Missile Crisis Mm -hmm. and how Kennedy uh, and his staff uh, cabinet allegedly read it shortly before and it was foremost on their minds. And I think that's well taken that, uh, you know, everyone blundered into war. There was – you're absolutely right. They made bad decisions. The German general staff did not blunder into war. Yep. they wanted to have a war and win it the kaiser wanted to win a war he just had you know morning after regrets about well i thought this was just going to be beating france again and, you yes. know getting more territory i didn't yes. realize I'd, i'm going to have to fight britain i'm going to have to put my precious ships mm-hmm. in danger oh my, oh my gosh you know my, my leben and that's what every country here in this book, is lacking. One guy yes. that said, I don't think this is a good idea. Let's not do this.
2: Drawing analogies to modernity and, and you know modern times and modern wars, we've all agreed and we're speaking now about um, the weakness of predetermined master plans. And I recall 2003, the build-up to the second Iraq war. There are two stark... Parallels. So we've identified the Cuban Missile Crisis as a time when they actually took the book uh, as a lesson. Um, and I think the second Iraq War shows us how in modern times we have failed to pay attention to the weakness of master plans. And it's it, there's a lot of resonance with some of the early failures of the second Iraq War with um uh the the onset of World War One and some of what Tuckman speaks about. One phrase in the twenty first century which I find has a resonance with the intelligentsia the and the political and military upper echelon of the time in nineteen fourteen is shock and awe. There were so many people in nineteen fourteen who felt that this was going to be a war won in a matter of weeks. Yes. There were so many people, and there were one or two lone voices, Kitchener being one of them, who felt that it would be a long uh, conflict, and, and I believe Churchill as well. But most people thought that it would be over in a matter of weeks. Most people had a false expectation, a false hope. And similarly, in the Second Iraq War, I find a great parallel with the shock and awe theory that indeed, at least in the Second Iraq War, the first phase was highly successful. Uh, but then you get to the second lesson of the predetermined plan, which is they anticipated with similar false hope, almost childlike yeah. hope, that they would be greeted in the streets with wreaths and flowers, and the GIs would be kissed by the women and the children. They'd be, you know, a- a- and they'd be lauded at, like Patton, you know, in Palermo. And it's just, it was not the case. It was not the case. Yet they proceeded with their plan of debathification to eliminate the Iraqi B- Sunni bureaucracy. And to dismantle the military, which is, we are dealing with those ramifications today. The way we we are still dealing with the implications of World War One, we will deal with the implications of those blunders for many, many decades to come. Yeah. Instead of looking at the situation on the ground, mm-hmm. um, I find the lessons of World War One could have been adhered to yeah. in Iraq, and we would be in a very different place today.
1: Not to not to get away from the uh, Iraq analogy, but uh, I think it's interesting when you're talking about what they were looking at and what they were spe- expecting after the war and when this book ends. Because this book is really about one war, and the rest of World War One is essentially another war. Yes. I mean, th- this war essentially... Had more in common with uh, the Franco-Prussian War or even um, the Napoleonic Wars than it did with World War One. Over just four years later, four years later, everything had changed. And uh, you know, if you read uh, Keegan, and I did, you know, yeah. many years ago, I understand why she quit because it's <laughs> it's it's grim, and nothing really changes and it, it is truly a war of attrition in the trenches. It is truly grim. It is truly Black Dadder. The end of World four years later had more in common with now. And it's mm. it's truly the beginning of this
2: era. This war was won. And and I think Tuckman ha- hammers this home, um, not as a result of any one party's glorious victory or brilliant strategy but as a result of every party's mistakes and just mm-hmm. one side made more mistakes um, than the other and of course the the final balance was offset by the united states
1: when you think about it it's just amazing that the, the germans did not win they, they had they mastered um, you know smart uh, aggression and smart you know whenever they were on the defensive they were using Trenches, barbed wire, and machine gun nests. They were ahead of the French, light years ahead of the French, and probably ahead of the British as far as how to defend. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, just they lost their nerve. M- Moltke lost his nerve the kaiser lost his nerve i mean it really is a story and you know let's let's underline one thing i'm glad the germans did not win i mean they're obviously a holes in this but uh they they had the golden opportunity to win and uh, they did. the yeah. french were trying to lay it on a platter for them uh so it's it's almost amazing that they uh did not yeah so.
2: it it really is and the, the french had had nothing uh they yeah. had a they had a feeling basically yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and so so more, once more got, than a feeling. <laughs> yeah, well, so, <laughs> it was <alone. laughs> a yeah, baby. So, you know, I mean, it really was the Germans mistakes. Um, the Germans mistakes were greater and more costly. Their strategic mistakes uh, at the very beginning and, you know, somewhat throughout the war. But it was theirs to lose.
1: They also the Germans made one huge uh, strategic uh, miscalculation. This whole we need to beat the France quickly. The only way we can do this is violating Belgian neutrality and knocking them out right away, so we can confront this Russian horde. was a it was a massive continuing strategic error, which, and with hindsight, 2020, we know was not necessary.
0: do you think doesn't hold up as well uh in this book what makes it feel dated in any way
2: what i find i don't know uh, if i would say dated but what i find flawed about the book which is just probably a personal um criticism more than anything else i found that she became mired in troop descriptions of troop movements mm-hmm. and um it, it, it was very, at times very dense, um, and, and, and I thought that the writing, um, oh, I guess this is sort of d- dated, that, that um, the writing didn't flow at times. Yes. And the editing was not as sophisticated as it would be today.
0: I, I think that's a, a, a common problem among military history, it just in general. And um, often when I'm reading military history, those are the hardest stretches of the books for me, where they're talking about such and such number division being stationed here. And then, you know, the left flank and the right flank. And it it is I flunked flank. (laughs) (laughs) well it's what it's one of the hardest things that you can do in writing period especially in narrative is to convey to the reader where people are in relation to each other to give a sense of space there are very few there are very few writers who can do that well Uh, you need moving maps or something like that yes yeah
2: i found that in this case um because her book was so literary in nature mm-hmm. and and the character descriptions were so colorful mm-hmm. that it it was a very stark juxtaposition. Almost when she got into the troop movements it was almost as if yeah. there was another writer yeah. present in the book.
1: I don't think anything in the book really uh, is dated to me, John. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed it and I, I guess I, I take what, what you're saying. I mean, I think it's really tough. Uh, to describe tactical movements and not be dry, I mean, without really, you know, theme music and moving maps and a documentary uh, setting. It's, I, I think it holds up. I think it holds up admirably well, and I know there's going to be a flurry of uh, books coming out and have been a flurry of books coming out about World War I, but I, feel, I really feel confident this is going to be the gold standard until, uh, you know, far into the century.
0: So I wanted to recommend a couple of things. I I mentioned uh, The uh, Fall of Eagles, which is a a series you guys, if you haven't watched it, you you need to watch. um, It's a BBC series made in the 70s. I wish I knew exactly which year it was. 13 parts, and it covers the years from... Essentially, the Austro-Prussian War up to uh, a little earlier than that, but from there up to the end of World War One, and it follows the three imperial families: the um, Hohenzollerns, the Habsburgs, and the Romanovs, and follows them to their ultimate downfall. Um, and it is a classic British broadcasting corporation costume drama. I think almost as good uh, as I, Claudius. So what you're about to hear is Kaiser Wilhelm talking to the Austrian ambassador, giving him the so-called blank check to attack Serbia after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Imperial Majesty, am I to understand that his Imperial
2: Majesty is saying...
0: I am saying, Excellency, that by now your army's going to be in occupation of
2: Belgrade. And that could have been the end of the affair. No one would have dared to interfere all Europe knows, I am, first and foremost, a man of peace. But there are limits! I am not entirely naive as to the consequences of war. But even you, Excellency, will agree, will you not, that there does come a time when a great power, Austria, Hungary, can no longer merely stand by but must reach for the sword. But Imperial Majesty... So, convey my deepest personal regard to your emperor. We consider our part in this affair to be now at an end. And now, luncheon.
0: So, uh, you can even find it. You don't have to buy it, though it'd be great if you did, because it's a a nice uh, set on Amazon. But it is um, uh, available on, on YouTube for free. I think all the episodes are up there. So, yep, that's my recommendation.
2: Well, now, what I would recommend uh, is a book I read some months ago, which both of you may have read. A popular book called Unbroken. I, uh, I know uh, I haven't read it. It is wonderfully written. It's it's quite literary and quite cinematic, which is I'm sure on purpose. But to do it correctly, uh, to write history and to do it in a cinematic way, it is gripping. It is entertaining. Um, it's the story of Louis Zamperini, Mm -hmm. uh, a POW from in the Pacific uh, from World War II, who begins his career as the son of immigrants in California, uh, as an Olympic runner who happens to meet Hitler at the Olympics uh, in Berlin before the outbreak of war, becomes a... A pilot and is shot down over the Pacific, um, and it takes you through his absolutely harrowing, abject tale of despair and torture, and it's a unique book because I mean, I've read a few books about the Pacific, but this book focusing on one man it is so unreal uh, that he existed and went through this. And the thing that makes this book unique is it doesn't end with his release. It takes you through his post-war experience,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which is so painful. The, the, the post-traumatic stress of a World War II veteran, uh, which is unique. Yes. And it's, it's something not told. It's something I've never read about before. Um, and it's incredibly moving. I would highly recommend it. Uh, you would read it in a couple of days.
0: That's Lauren Hillebrand, right? Author of of Seabiscuit. Correct. All right. Great suggestion. Thanks. Ed anything okay do you,
1: you want me to, do you want me to go conventional to non-conventional or other way around?
0: Let's go conventional to non-conventional.
1: okay let's do conventional non-conventional uh, World War one wise uh, I think the best novel is still uh, all quiet on the Western Front. 100 percent agree. It's mm. still a fantastic book. Um, it should be you know noted. Uh, that you know, remark the uh, author was you know fled from for his life from the Nazis yeah uh, due to his beliefs um, the and you know was actually you know fought and injured uh, in World War One uh, from non World War One perspective the most uh, I, I've read a couple but they might be the subject of podcasts future so I'll I'll, I'll pick one that probably won't be for a while and that's the Plantagenets. Uh, mm, that yes. is by Dan Jones which is uh the basically the all the plantagenets from um, uh, Maud Matilda Empress <laughs> Matilda namesake of my eldest daughter uh all the way through uh the um, takeover by Henry the 4th so yeah that's a great one um uh non-conventionally, and that's during we've we've talked about Moltke Moltke the younger quite a bit Moltke the Younger was in the book, very much living in the shadow of his much more famous yes. uncle, Moltke the Elder, who is a legendary Prussian general uh, who won, you know, won against the Danish, won decisively against the French in the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, he, you know, a, a friend of of Bismarck, and he actually, when they, the uh, a couple of years ago. They found in the uh, Edison Library that uh, a colleague, one of the Edison Lab employees, had wax cylinders. He was a German employee, and he had went, apparently, to Germany, uh, or, you know, yeah, the German Empire in 1889 and had uh, recordings of Otto von Bismarck. What? And Helmut von Moltke. Are you kidding me? I'm not. Not at all. I will give you the link. Helmuth, Helmuth von Moltke was born in 1800. So his and he was 89 when he he had this audio, this scratchy but le, you know legible. You know in well, what's the audio version of legible? Anyway, understandable, audible. <laughs> uh, audible. God damn it, audible, audible, understandable uh, in German. Uh, recording, but he being born in 1800 means he is the only voice you will ever hear from the 18th century, born in the 18th century. So, that's
0: incredible. Yes. Wow. That is so, that amazing. Is... I, you must send me the link. I will put it up Absolutely. on the accompanying website. That's incredible. Well, you ended that on a high note, I have to say. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's it for us for tonight. So I'll, if, I'll let you guys know about barstoolhistorian.com. Uh, which is where you'll find uh, all the episodes. You'll find links to the stuff we're talking about here, the books, the films, etc. So yeah, so look for that, and hopefully sponsorships and loads of money will then roll in, of, of course, <laughs> because that's where yes. the big bucks are made. The, you
1: know, the Nigerian princes will be lining up. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: mean Did I, I, should... I mention that I'm drinking Oban single malt whiskey? <laughs> <laughs>